Hi, my name is Jonathan Crow, concertmaster of the Toronto Symphony Orchestra, and you're listening to Talking Blues. So, I understand you're a Montreal Canadiens fan. That's right. I grew up in Prince George, BC, and as a young kid, uh, I was too young. I didn't stay up till the seven o'clock game on the East Coast because it was too late for me. But I got every single Canadians game on French CBC as a kid. So I think I just kind of fell in love with them when I was growing up, rather than the Maple Leafs and rather than the Canucks even, because I could listen to the watch the four o'clock game and then go to bed. Wow. So, so it must have been great when you played for the Montreal Symphony. It was, it was pretty cool. I went to school in Montreal, and I got to go to Habs games. You know, I even got to go to the old forum before it shut down. It was, pre- it was pretty neat, you know, as a, as a kid, seeing all these players for the Habs and then getting to go, you know, and this is back when there was still a chance of them winning a Stanley Cup. You know, they, they didn't necessarily, <laughs> but there, there was hope, whereas now I, I don't think there's that much hope for a while. Um, did you play at all? I presume you're quite, quite busy practicing your violin, but did you play hockey at all? I played and never organized, but in Prince George, I don't know if you know the town, but it's fairly far north in BC. Yeah. And it's very cold. So every single kind of October, my father and a bunch of the other kind of parents would go out and flood the tennis courts. And that was what our hockey rinks were. Um, and so it's basically every day it was after school. It's like, well, let's just go play some hockey, some shinny. And, you know, it was fun. I, I wouldn't say I was really all that good at it, and I never did kind of midget or anything like that, but I, I really enjoyed it. Okay, but I presume you were quite busy practicing your violin, correct? Yeah, I mean, like any other kid, I would rather play hockey and go outside and <laughs> hang out with my friends. It's a little bit more communal than being alone in a practice room. I did really like the social aspects of playing the violin as a kid, though. I did Suzuki program. Um, which means that I was in group classes from the age of six, playing in little string orchestras, playing in quartets and doing things with other people. And that part of it, I really, really enjoyed. Maybe more so than playing the piano. I think if I were a pianist from a young kid, I don't think I would still be doing it. (laughs) Um, And that would be a loss to the world, I would imagine. Mm -hmm. Can you tell me, um, I presume at age of six, when, when you started playing, it was probably more your parents' say than yours, or am I incorrect in assuming that? No, you're, you're absolutely right. I lived in Prince George, of course, and my parents were from Oxford and London, England. Oh. So you can imagine, yeah, it's a, it's a big change to go from, you know, two very, very vibrant and international cities to a place which is amazing, but it's not a very kind of like international sort of destination. It's more outdoors and beautiful countryside mm-hmm. and amazing people. But if you're looking for classical music or a symphony or an art gallery, you know, Prince George is just not a big enough space to have all of that. So I think when this free Suzuki program came in the school district, I think my parents thought, hey, this is a great chance for us to meet like-minded people, to put our kids into something cultural, should be fun. I never had thought, oh, I want to be a violinist. I was never one of those kids that saw a violinist or saw a violin somewhere and thought, I want to do that. My parents are like, you're going to music lessons now. And I'm like, okay, because <laughs> that's what you say when you're six. Yes. But I, I really liked it from the very beginning. It wasn't them forcing me to do it. I liked playing the violin and they, at any moment I could have quit. But if I was going to do it and keep doing it, they were very serious. Like you got to do it properly, which means that you got to practice. You can't show up for your lesson without having done anything. And again, that's really the same as hockey. You know, you have a great coach who's like, hockey is super fun, but you still have to do these drills. Right. It's not about just go and like shinny the entire time. You know, you know take it seriously and, and do it to the best of your ability. 
I always wonder when somebody starts at that age, at what point, you said you liked it from the very beginning, but what point did it become your passion? What point did you love it? Yeah, it's a great question. I went off to university and I was doing music and math. And I'm like, well, I, I like both of these. And math is maybe a more realistic career goal. As a teacher? And um, well, just in anything, right? I mean, there's there's more jobs in anything, basically, than in classical music. Right. And the thing is, like, what happens if you break a finger or you break an arm and suddenly you're like, oh, I'm the best violinist in the world. And now I can't do anything, right? Even the greatest musicians your career can be over in a flash and you can't predict that. Um, and so I thought it was nice to have some sort of fallback. And I think I only later realized it would have been a much more serious decision to quit the violin than to keep playing the violin. You know, it was something I'd always done. I'd been playing from the age of six up till 18 at that point. It was always part of my life. I couldn't remember a time when I wasn't playing the violin. Mm -hmm. So to, to actively say like, you know what, I'm no longer going to do this. That would have been a really big change in my life more so than just like, this is something I've always done. It's going to be part of my life somehow for the rest of my life. So I'm just going to keep doing it. I don't know if this is a fair question, but at what point did you think you were good? That, well, yeah, of course it's a great question. I don't think I would have kept doing it as much as a kid, if I didn't think I was good, right? But at the same time, I wasn't growing up in Toronto where there are 6 million people or whatever it is now and tons of people playing the violin. I was growing up in a small town. Mm -hmm. And so I loved playing the violin. I had a great string orchestra. And I think I thought, hey, I'm pretty good at this. I find it not so difficult. But at the same time, it's even as a kid, I think you realize like, okay, well, there's it's just not a big city. I don't know what I'm comparing myself to. You know, who knows? There's people out there that are just spectacular. It was kind of before the days of YouTube and the internet. So I got recordings of Itzhak Perlman and Josh Bell, but I wasn't able to go on the internet and see like, you know, these 10-year-olds that are just phenomenal, that are playing like better at the age of 10 than I'll ever play. Um, and I think that's probably a good thing because I think it's easy to go online now and see these kind of like prodigies and think, oh, why am I even bothering? These people are amazing. <laughs> Do you think if you saw that, are you the type who would say, oh, why bother? Or I have a feeling you're the type who would say, I can be as good, if not better than that. <laughs> yeah, I think you're probably right. I think I would be like, hey, I, I'm going to try to do that. I bet I can do that too. Um, but, but did the instrument come easy to you? Yeah, I mean, it did. And I was lucky I had an older sister who was playing the violin at the same time. She was six years older than me. And so she would practice in the evenings and as a six-year-old, I'd be going to bed and I would hear her playing all the pieces that I was going to play one day, right? So a little bit down the road, I would come to a piece that she'd been playing and I think, wow, I already know how this goes. Like it's been drilled into me as a little kid and now I'm nine and I'm playing this harder piece and it's already in my head. It's already memorized. So I think it's a, it kind of shows the success of the Suzuki program, which is based on listening and hearing other people do it and copying that rather than reading music. But it shows that if you have something kind of in your head drilled into you, it really kind of sticks, especially at a young age. So I think that was an advantage for me. It's interesting that you say that, because I've heard somebody else mention that, that they used to go to their, I believe, the older sister's classical mm -hmm. lessons. And, and even though they didn't play at all, they were just kind of soaking it all in and felt that yeah. they kind of knew the material through osmosis or whatever. Yeah, absolutely. And then there's a little bit of competition, right? I've got the older sibling playing. It's like, oh, I want to be able to play like that, right? It kind of, it inspires you to see where you can get to. 
Um, what did your parents, if you don't mind me asking, what did your parents do that made them move to Prince George? Yeah, not at all. So they were doing graduate studies at the University of British Columbia okay. um, in, the, in the sciences. And my dad got a job at the College of New Caledonia, it's called, which was basically a university transfer program. It didn't offer a bachelor degree of its own, but you could get a diploma. Or what you could do is start a bachelor degree, and then after two years, you could transfer down to UBC in Vancouver and finish your degree at UBC. So it was a great situation for somebody in Prince George that wanted to go away to school, but maybe couldn't afford the full four years of it, or didn't want to leave home for you know maybe two years and then go away to you know the big city as we thought of it in Prince George. And you know, I, it's it's hard to know. He got a job there, and. It's a lovely place to live. It's a great place to bring up a family. If you're from England and you're looking for a place with space and outdoors and, you know, learning to camp in the Canadian lifestyle, it's kind of fantastic. I would imagine, yeah. So how often would you have gone down to the big city like Vancouver? Um, I suppose we would often do like a summer vacation, but that was normally not going to Vancouver. Later on, when I got a little bit older and I was doing kind of the provincial competitions and stuff, once a year, there'd be a provincial competition in another city in BC. And that would often be somewhere a little bit bigger than Prince George. Sometimes it would be somewhere even smaller, like Kimberley, BC. I really got to see the province. Um, But I suppose at the age of kind of 12 or 13, we started going to Vancouver and that sort of stuff more regularly in the summers My parents bought a house in Victoria, and we would live there, I think, from the age of 12 to 15. No, from the age of 15 to 18 in the summer. And I would go to a summer program and this sort of thing. So I got to know the rest of the province a little bit more and have exposure to more musicians and more teachers and this sort of thing. And I know you went to the Victoria's Conservatory of Music. And I I guess at one point you said you were going to study math and and music. Um, At what point did you think, okay, music is the way to go? When I got a job, I thought that I decided like, well, you know, I'm going to take this audition for a lark. I was still kind of doing both, but you know, it things kind of resolved themselves, and I actually liked the way it worked out because I didn't have to make a decision. I'm going to quit this, or I'm going to keep going with this. It was very natural to be studying, and actually, it's maybe a more natural way than we think of now. Or at the age of 16, you decide, well, this is what I have to do for the rest of my life. It's a little bit silly. I really loved university. I loved music classes. I loved my math classes. It was like great to learn different things. And at one point I was able to like, you know, transition seamlessly from university into a job, which is everybody's goal and hope, I suppose. Um, It was really lucky and I didn't have to make that decision. I'm now going to quit something. But that job was the Montreal Symphony. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. That's, That's a pretty good first job. It's, I was, it was pretty amazing first job. And, you know, I, I did the audition when I was in third year at school. And in retrospect, I had so many advantages. I didn't have a mortgage. I didn't have a family. I didn't have anything riding on this audition. Uh, it was the first audition I'd ever done. And so I had no bad kind of connotations, no expectations like, oh, this is an audition. It's going to be terrible and stressful. I'm just like, hey, I wonder what this is going to be like. And I went and I played my excerpts and there was nothing riding on it. So I had no nerves. I wasn't uptight about it. I wasn't stressed out in any way. It just felt, you know, like going to school. At that point in your life, if you can take us back there, and with that attitude of I got nothing to lose, let's just try this. Did you 
did you have any any kind of a goal or plan I mean it doesn't sound like it but I presume music was definitely going to be in your future and and I wonder as a violinist if if you wanted to be in the orchestra or become a soloist or freelance violinist or was there any thought of which direction you wanted to go or were you just riding the wave and see where it took you um in this case certainly just riding the wave i never thought i would not go back to school ever again i was assuming like i'm going to play this in this orchestra it's an amazing orchestra i'm going to make a bit of money so i can do a master's at one of the really big schools in the states um and that was always my plan to do a couple years in the orchestra and then to go back to school and study again but I realized really, really fast, like, wow, there's so much I can learn from this job. You know, I was sitting in the front. I got to be really close to the guest conductors. I got to be really close to the guest soloists. First concert I played was with Zubin Mehta conducting Mahler II with Henriette Schellenberg singing. Wow. I think, I think the week after Martha Argerich came into town, like really amazing people. And you can learn so much from paying attention, you know, from being really up close to the best of the best and learning how they work, how they play, how they kind of interact in rehearsal. And it's just so fast what happens. I don't think you can ever prepare for that in school. University orchestra is just a totally different situation. You'll rehearse a piece for six weeks in a university orchestra and then perform it. And in the real life, you rehearse for maybe six hours and perform it. So in the space of that first year, I realized like, wow, I'm learning so much from this. I'm learning how to be a professional. I'm learning how to interact with great musicians and some of the world's top players. And I just never really did go back to school. And I wonder, well, you kind of did, but on the other side, right? Because you were yeah, right. teaching. But, <laughs> but I wonder, can you give me an example of something that you might have seen or heard or an example of what you witnessed that made an impression on, impression on you that thought, wow, this is, this is learning something that I would never learn in a school. Um, it's hard to put into words exactly what it is, but it's like, I think it's like any job, right? You, you do the training for the job, but then you do the job and you learn so much just from doing it. And you learn it so much from people that have the experience in the field around you about what you need to do, what you need to do for preparation. I remember when I first joined the orchestra, we went on tour and this is an orchestra that played tons and tons of repertoire and didn't rehearse very often because everybody knew everything so well. So we'd be on tour and we played Ravel's La Valse, I think 15 times on tour as an encore before ever rehearsing it. And I think I was lost for 14 of those 15 times. I just had no idea where to go. I didn't know this piece at all. You know, and I had a wonderful stand partner and great mentors in the orchestra who would kind of help me and say, explain what the level of preparation needed to be. And it was beyond what I'd ever known. I was used to, used to going to orchestra and kind of being among the best people and learning as you go. And then I realized I got to the Montreal Symphony and, you know, 90 people in the orchestra and 90 of those people knew the piece way better than me. And whether or not they were better players than me wasn't the point. Every single person knew it inside out and I was the weak link. And that made me realize like, oh, yeah, I'm not going to be the best in every orchestra. I need to learn from these people that have done things so much more than me and have so much more experience. How, how um, receptive are they to seeing a 19-year-old or a 20-year-old young kid with a violin come into the <laughs> orchestra? Uh, is there any weird feelings or are they very open and accepting to, to, to you as a young player? 
I I felt very welcomed. I'd been subbing with the orchestra before, so everybody knew me. But I would also say I joined in a very natural way. I did not join as concertmaster, and I didn't have to get up in my first rehearsal and change the bowing to a piece that everybody else had paid, played 50 times and I'd never played before. I joined as associate principal second, which means that I was the front desk of the second violins, but wasn't a principal player but also got to be at the front. So I learned how the principal players interacted and what the concertmaster would do and how he would change Boeings and stuff like that. And I got to learn how to be a leader and how to be in an orchestra without actually having to be that leader from the beginning. So it was a very natural way of joining. Um, I won an audition for associate concertmaster about six months in and moved over to the first violins and did that for three years. Again, in a, in a title position, but not in the kind of like, top leadership position in the orchestra. So I got to learn how to do the job from my stand partner and from other members of the orchestra, but wasn't expected to kind of jump in and just be like, okay, now you're the boss. And I would say it's a, a much more natural way of doing it than winning audition for concertmaster at the age of 19 and being expected to tell people what to do when they know so much more what to do than you do. I got to learn from the experience before I had that you know, kind of responsibility. But but you got that responsibility pretty quickly afterwards at 22 or something, right? Yeah, but at the same time, I had that, that point been playing in an orchestra full-time for three years. So even though I was young, people had seen me learn. They'd seen me kind of hopefully adjust and change and realize what to do. It's different than having somebody that jumps in from university and thinks that they know everything. Okay, so explain the concertmaster's role. Because I, I know that it's a major role, and in, in, in I, I would presume like you're probably the 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 team player and and maybe the most important team player. Maybe important is not the right word, but the lead team team player in the orchestra. What what is the role of a concertmaster? Yeah, I think my music director at the Toronto Symphony, Peter Unjan, referred to it as being the captain of the hockey team. Like if the conductor is the coach, then the concertmaster is perhaps the captain. Um, and so anybody that's seen a symphony orchestra concert knows that I'm the one that walks on stage at the beginning of the concert to rapturous applause. And this is not applause for the concertmaster specifically. This is the applause that in a way the concertmaster accepts on behalf of the orchestra. And I think that's kind of a good way of looking at it. The concertmaster is a little bit of a representative of the orchestra in all ways, right? I kind of sit on the board. I'm a representative of the orchestra to the board. I often speak with management. I'm representative of the orchestra to management. When we have a guest conductor, the guest conductor will expect me to kind of, you know, be the translator. If he asks or if she asks for something that the orchestra doesn't quite understand, it's up to me to figure out a way to put it into to words or gestures that we get. If the orchestra plays something a certain way and the guest conductor doesn't get that, again, it's my job to kind of translate and to figure out how to kind of bridge that gap. Um, in a much more kind of pragmatic way, the concertmaster is responsible for the bowings of all the violinists and kind of overall for the strings to make sure that we're all playing things the same way. I'm responsible for making sure that we are all playing things in the same part of the bow so that we have the same sound, finding a way that we're kind of all in the same page and blending together and that sort of thing. Is that an actual teaching or is that something shown by example? Like how do you teach this huge group of string instruments how to bow in unison yeah. um it's a great question i mean they're all incredibly experienced and know exactly 
what we're all going for together. But sometimes it's like I, by example, I will be playing something at the tip and my colleagues will notice that and react and think, oh, Jonathan's in this part of the bow. So this must be the sort of sound that we're going for. Sometimes it's a little bit more explicit. The conductor will want a certain sort of sound and maybe that's a change from what we're doing. So I'll make a decision like, okay, that means we're going to play it off the string in the middle to kind of change from what we're used to, to, to try to achieve the result that the conductor would want. Um, so it's a mix of both. And sometimes, you know, there's time in rehearsal for explaining a few things, but there's certainly not enough time to talk about everything. So much of it is by example and just kind of demonstrating where I think we should be and expecting that my colleagues will kind of adjust and that we can find a cohesive sound together. So when you, at, at the age of 22, and you were, I believe, the youngest concertmaster in North America, that's right. Um, is that something? Is that a job you go after, or is that something that's given to you? Um, so when I won the associate concertmaster job, um, yeah, I mean these these are auditions that come up basically, and you take the audition for the position. Um, so when I moved over to the associate concertmaster position in the Montreal Symphony, there was a an announced audition said we're going to be hiring an associate concertmaster and there's going to be an audition on this day and you have to play these excerpts and these pieces and we're going to pick from the best person. So I think, I'm not sure how many people came, maybe not that many, maybe only 20 from around Canada. And I think there were two other people in the orchestra who did the audition as well. And I was fortunate enough to be the one that, that won that audition. So can I ask you, at that point, when you decide to audition, and I presume at this point, it's not just riding the wave. You're now focused on where you want to be or whatever. Yeah, at that point, I was focused and wanted to be a musician and no longer felt that kind of happy-go-lucky, like, oh, this audition's easy for me. At that point, I was like, ah, this is very stressful. It's all of my <laughs> colleagues behind the panel listening. And yeah, no, there, there were nerves for that one, that's for sure. So what... What made you go after that position? Um, that's a great question. I think I had always been a title player as a kid in the orchestras that I was in, you know, and it's, I found it enjoyable. I liked the responsibility. I like being able to play in the front of the orchestra. Just to be honest, it's way easier. You're right next to the conductor and there's no kind of like lag in trying to interpret what he or she wants. If you're playing at the back of the violins, it's so much harder. It takes actually much more care and thought in your ensemble. You can't hear things as well, so it's harder to kind of get your feelers out and react. It's way easier to play at the front, and I wanted to stay there. <laughs> okay, so I, w I know you do solo work, and I, you, I know you do guest work with other symphonies and whatever, but um, was there ever a time that you thought, I'd rather be a solo artist or featured artist than be a concertmaster, or does one not think that way? I think people certainly think that way, and I've always been lucky to have a whole bunch of different things going on in my life. Um, I left orchestra for a while and was a teacher and a, a soloist for about seven years when I was at McGill University. Um, but even during that time, I still did guest work with orchestras. Even during the times that I've been a concertmaster, I've done guest solo work and chamber music and teaching. Um, and I think it's really nice to have a few weeks with orchestra. And then it's nice to be like, oh, now I get to play some chamber music repertoire. Beethoven quartets are incredible. And then it's like, okay, now I can go play Brahms concerto with a, a symphony orchestra. It's like, it's really nice for me to have that variety and to feel like I have the chance to do so many different things and, and not be like set like, okay, all I'm playing right now is orchestra or, oh my gosh, I'm on a quartet tour for six months here and I need it to make a living. 
it's really nice to have the flexibility, but also the kind of stability of an orchestra job with other things on the outside. Okay, so one of the things that you do is play with a string quartet. That's right. Uh, with a new Orford string quartet. Um, tell me about the difference in your approach to playing in the string quartet, whether it be the first or second violin versus being a concert master. Yeah, um, there's much more flexibility in a string quartet and there's only four people and everybody can individually react to what you do. And so it means if you want to be spontaneous with something, you can. In the rehearsal, you have time to discuss every last detail and it becomes more of a diplomacy that you discuss something and then you have to come to a consensus together. In orchestra, it, there's just not time for that. And it's not realistic to think that 93 people are going to come to the exact same consensus on everything. You have to have a boss and there has to be the ideas like, okay, as much as we all have our own musical ideas, at the end of the day, we need to find something that we do together. And the conductor has to be the person that kind of inspires that musical idea. So I think you need to come up with a different way of getting musical satisfaction. In a string quartet, you really can work everything out and have a diplomacy and you can vote. Or you can Sometimes you win, sometimes you lose, but you have the time to explore all of your ideas. And, you know, if it doesn't go your way once, it will the next time. In an orchestra, you don't necessarily get to choose things as much. And you need to get your mus musical satisfaction from knowing that you're part of a greater collective and knowing that everybody's on the same page trying to do something amazing even if it's not totally your idea. You kind of touched upon this, but for those of us who don't know, like if you present a concert with the TSO or the Montreal Symphony, how much time is going into rehearsing that piece? Yeah, it depends whether it's something that we know really well, if it's one of the big hits, the big standards, Beethoven 5 or something like that, or if it's a new piece. If it's a program that we know well, we'll generally have three concerts in the week and then four or five kind of total rehearsals for that concert. So a regular schedule could be a Monday rehearsal, two rehearsals on the Tuesday, a dress rehearsal Wednesday morning, and then a Wednesday night, Thursday night, Saturday night concert or something like that. Um, so it's much, much less time. If it's music that we don't know as well, there might be an extra rehearsal for that. And if it's music that we really play a lot, there might be fewer rehearsals. Sometimes we do concerts with only two rehearsals for a full-length concert, which basically means you have time to play through the piece, talk about it a little bit, and then, okay, the next day is the dress rehearsal. We just make sure everything's kind of working. So the expectation of preparation before the rehearsal is very, very high, of course. You can't have time to learn your part while you're rehearsing. You need to come with your part totally learned. You need to know what other people are doing so that the conductor's not stopping rehearsal, trying to figure out the basics of like, you don't know who you're following here, that there is time for discussion or, you know, working on musical ideas. Um, do you have any say on being part of the, being a concert master on, on the program that's coming up? Or is that totally up to the conductors who are bringing the program? I would say as concert master, I have very little say. Um, but the orchestra has an artistic advisory committee, and I'm a member of that. So that's five players that are elected from the orchestra. And about once a month, we go into a discussion with the artistic team, and we talk about programs. We talk about basically everything. But a lot of it comes down to like programming and what we need to do, what we feel we need as an orchestra. You know, it's very complicated. What marketing needs to sell tickets, what the guest conductors want to do because they feel that it's worthwhile, what the music director 
wants to do as a kind of an overarching plan. And that might be looking at kind of five years down the road to do the complete Mahler symphonies or something. So there's a lot of things that go into it. And as concertmaster, I have very little influence, but the artistic advisory gets into very kind of deep discussions as to what we should be programming and what we need to play as an orchestra. Okay, so I have had the privilege of watching you work mainly through video. And uh, and recently I saw you working with the Royal Conservatory Orchestra in person while you were rehearsing. What strikes me about you and what I've seen, and and obviously not a a great range of material or over a great deal of time, but what what struck me is that you're very serious about your music and um, I get the feeling you know the music inside out or you have definite ideas of whatever you're playing and how it should be played. Um, Where does that come from? Um, Is Is that a fair assessment? Yeah, I mean, I would like to think that I know it inside out, and I, I appreciate that. I think any time you get on stage, you have to think that you have something to say. Otherwise, why are you doing it, right? So there's a fine line between arrogance and being like, well, this is the best idea anybody's ever had, and you need to do it this way, but also the confidence that I have a musical idea, and at this time, in this place, it's a valid one. And I feel confident in you know putting something together with that in mind. And I think that's it's something that we all kind of struggle with is to find the balance between being arrogant and thinking that your ideas are better than everybody else's, but also the idea, like if I'm going to get on stage, people are listening to me. They're coming to the concert because they think I have something interesting to say. Otherwise they wouldn't be here. And I think that's an important thing, right? There's no perfect interpretation of anything. There's no one way that is like the best way of doing it. And part of the appeal of music is, interpreting, hearing interpretations, hearing the way different people have different ideas about music. It's fascinating. And I think it's important that every time you get on stage, you're firmly convinced about what you're doing and that you have something to say and that you're in a way selling that idea to the audience. Now, the joy of of music is that things change. You know, I've learned things since the age of 20. I know hopefully more about some of the music that I'm playing now and I have changed some of my ideas. And I think that's a great thing that people can have flexibility and be willing to learn from experience, from new research about music, from different people doing things differently, but also that they have confidence in what they're saying, that there's something valuable about it. Does that idea that you bring to the table ever conflict with maybe what the conductor is trying to present? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that's where flexibility comes into it, right? A conductor might have an idea which is deeply different than what I might think. And at the end of the day, that's not the point. Like, I would love to try to do something outside of my comfort zone, and maybe I learn from it. And sometimes my ideas are changing. Like, wow, that was, yeah, I like that better than what I was thinking, and I've learned from that. And sometimes I'm like, no, I don't think that's as good an interpretation as what I would do. And again, that's not the point, because half the people in the audience might deeply disagree with me. But it's about doing what you're doing with deep conviction, So if a conductor comes in, I think it's the role of the orchestra to really do to the best of their ability what that person is asking of them. And maybe we learn something from it. And if we don't, well, we've learned how to kind of work towards something which is not our idea and get satisfaction from doing it extremely well. So I know in in classical music, mentorship is a huge thing or the act of teaching, which you do as well. But... Can you talk about 
the teaching side of things. And I, and I presume that having opinions about certain pieces is probably partly inspired by somebody who's taught you in the past who might have given you those ideas, correct? Yeah, and I would say the greatest teachers are not the people who give the ideas, but that encourage the students to come to conclusions on their own. Um, and that might not be the same conclusions as what the teacher thinks, but that they're inspiring the students to find their own ideas and to, you know, with deep research and care and attention to the history of the music and that sort of thing, to come up with what they want to say through it. And I think teaching is really, it's a good exercise in learning how to not inflict your own ideas on somebody, but also to inspire them and hopefully get them to find something of their own in music. And I think that's a really good thing, like the, to encourage the flexibility of being open to new ideas, of not to say, well, this is the way I want to do it, but to think, oh, maybe I could change it. Maybe this is different. Maybe this will be successful. And try to find a way that you're incorporating all kinds of different information, all kinds of different ideas and study into your own playing. I wonder at what point did you decide that you wanted to be a teacher? I, I, I presume pretty early on, but if that's the case, and also what made you want to pursue that side of music? Yeah, um, I've always liked teaching and I find it really, really good for my own playing, right? There's something about standing in a classroom, you know, for 18 hours in a week and telling people this is the way you need to do something technically. I go back to the practice room and I'm thinking, yeah, well, maybe I should be doing that too, right? You know, <laughs> I'm telling people what to do and I'm not doing myself. It's They're going to notice that when I get on stage and they're going to be like, hey, you told me that you should do this and you're not doing it yourself. You know, I think the act of teaching somebody else makes us a little bit more self-critical, which is a very good thing. I think every musician needs to be intensely self-critical so that we don't get into habits, that we don't kind of lapse into just doing things the same way but that we're always trying to, you know, refine our own playing and to improve and to get better as we get older. You know, inherently, as we get older, some of the technical stuff doesn't work as well. You know, my fingers are not as nimble as they were when I was 20. Um, but I hope that I make up for it by being smarter and having thought about things a little bit more and having more experience in my musical interpretations, hopefully have a little bit more relevance. Um, but, you know, you're, it's, it's, it's like the hockey player, right? You get somebody like Chris Chelios that can play up until the late 40s because he's so smart and he knows where to be. Mm -hmm. He's not skating as fast as, you know, the young guys around him, but he always knows how to be at the puck before them somehow, right? I think music's the same way. It's this kind of like mix between, okay, the agility of youth and just the kind of like you can do anything because you can practice for 12 hours a day without hurting yourself. Uh, but eventually you lose that and you need to find, okay, what, what can I bring now that actually makes up for the fact that maybe I'm not as quick with my fingers as I used to be. But do you think you're, as a player, being smarter, but do you think you could do everything you did when you were in your 20s? Oh, gosh, not even close. I listen to old recordings and I think, wow, I would never interpret it like that anymore. That was a stupid way of doing things. But I, I can do it better than I can now, perhaps. <laughs> <laughs> um, the other thing that you're involved in is the Toronto Summer Music Festival. How did that sure. happen? And tell me a little bit about that festival. Yeah, the previous artistic director was a, a mentor of mine from McGill University, a guy named Douglas McNabney, who was my first chamber music coach at McGill. And he started kind of a new way of teaching at this Toronto Summer Music where you would learn from playing on stage with professionals. So rather than having lessons and somebody saying, okay, you should do this, 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 and then sending the students out on stage to play by themselves, 
the concept of Toronto summer music is that we learn by doing. And in the same way that I said earlier that I learned from playing under Zubin Mehta and working with Martha Argrich in the Montreal Symphony, mm-hmm. the idea is we bring in great professional team musicians from all around the world. And we have these almost kind of professional fellows, we call them. They're generally kind of post degree programs or, you know, just about to start a career in the field, but maybe haven't had that kind of just pre-professional training. And they work on stage with these professionals and they learn chamber pieces and they perform them. And the idea is to try to bridge the gap a little bit between school, where you might do your orchestra for six weeks or chamber music for six weeks and do a concert and the real world where you do orchestra for six hours and do a concert. So we have four weeks and we each of the fellows does four chamber programs and they rehearse it for a week and then perform it, which is still a quick study, but maybe not as fast as you would have to do it if you went off to a festival as a professional and you had to do your Brahms sextet in one or two rehearsals. So when Douglas stepped down, I actually contacted him and said like, look, I'm, I'm living in Toronto. I love the concept of this festival. I've been a mentor here for the past six years. Um, I want to figure out how to apply because I love the work that you've been doing and I'd love to take over. Um, and so then the process went, you know, went on and luckily in my favor, the board decided that I'd be a good hire, despite having no experience running a festival at any point point before this, but, you know, having enough experience in the music field of teaching, of working with an orchestra, of knowing how to work with a board through my work with the Toronto Symphony, you know, of doing my own programming. There's a lot of programming of solo stuff that you have to kind of take on in the field when you're doing touring and recitals in different place, places like that but it's interesting because it's not just classical music and last year or sorry this year there was some jazz musicians as well tell me about that connection between the two genres yeah well, i mean i think the title of the festival is toronto summer music not toronto summer classical music and i think you know we, we like to put music into boxes and be like okay well this is a symphony and this is classical music so nobody likes it Mm-hmm. but it should get government funding because it's very important. And then, okay, well, this is rock music, so it should never get government music, but everybody loves it, but it's for making money. It's a different kind of way of thinking about it. And I think it's kind of a mistake. You know, when Beethoven is writing his symphonies, he wasn't thinking, oh, I'm going to write a classical symphony. He was like, I'm writing music. People like music. They'll probably come and listen to it. That's great. I like what I'm doing, right? And we kind of we kind of separate music these days and we're like, okay, well, it's our responsibility to do certain kinds of things. I think it's just music. Um, and the person who did our jazz concert the last couple of years is a, a great example of that. Mark Fewer, who's a, an amazing violinist from Newfoundland originally, has been concertmaster of the Vancouver Symphony, has been a full professor at McGill University, is now professor at U of T plays jazz on the side, but I wouldn't even say it's on the side. He's fantastic. He won a Juno for his jazz playing. He's an accomplished fiddler. Like he plays Baroque on a Baroque bow with a, you know, authentic violin. He just kind of does everything. And for him, he's not like, oh, now I'm doing a jazz show. Now I'm doing a classical show. He just does, he plays music Mm. and he does concerts and they're incredible. And there's no idea like, well, this is a, I'm trying to bring this to different people because they should like jazz. He's like, no, I, I play music and this is what I want to say. And it's, I, I like doing it and it's great. People like listening to it. Um, so at Toronto Summer Music, we try to kind of do a little bit of that rather than saying we're doing a jazz show. I just try to put on concerts and some of them will be different. Some of them are things I know nothing about. Some of them are things I know a lot about, but the ones I don't know much about, if I can learn something from them, 
that's fantastic. I mean, I, I presume at your level, you're pretty well focused in on classical music and, and with all that you do with the symphony, with the string quartet, with the solo work that you do or the duets or whatever. Um, well, is there any other types of music that you do that I, that would surprise me or that, that you're into that would surprise me? You know, sadly, I'm not that cool. Like every, <laughs> I'd, I'd love to be able to come out and say like, oh, I love this and this jazz thing. I just... I really love classical music. And again, I said, I'm not supposed to call it classical. I, I love music, but I, I grew up playing symphonies. I didn't grow up doing jazz. Unfortunately, I didn't grow up doing fiddling. I would, I would have loved to, and I bet I would have loved it if it were what I learned as a kid, but it's not. I learned playing symphonies and quartets and sonatas and recitals. And I love to listen to it as well. You know, I, I don't listen to a huge amount of music because I spend so much of my time in the middle of that music that sometimes it's not what I want to do when I get home is putting on another symphony recording of what I rehearsed all day. But for fun, absolutely. I listen to classical music and I enjoy it. You also did some work with, um, or do some work with looking at the stars organization. Yeah. Can you talk about that? Cause it's an interesting work, I think. Yeah, no, it's a, it's an amazing concept. Uh, looking at the stars is an organization run by a guy named Dmitry Kenovich and basically, he brings music to people that, for various reasons, have no access to it whatsoever. And it's kind of gone through different places. There used to be, he used to go into hospitals and this sort of stuff more, but it's kind of transitioned a little bit more into going into prisons, um, where people really cannot get to Roy Thompson Hall. They're in jail. And the idea of bringing music to people that just don't really have all that much else. And I got to say, it's the most amazing program i've done maybe five or six concerts with him now and this this kind of is from minimum security prisons for people that are not there for that long and many of those people are like oh yeah i remember going to the symphony with my mom i'll have to come back when i get out in two months um but we've also been to maximum security prisons where basically everybody in there is in there for life and it's a different way of playing you know a lot of what we do we, we do outreach and we try to act, help people in the community but at its heart, when you're doing that with a symphony, much of it is to try to be like, oh, we're going to bring this music to you because we hope that you're going to come back to the hall one day. Right. And if you're playing for somebody in a maximum security prison that's there for life, there's not really any hope that you're going to bring these people to Roy Thompson Hall. The idea is not to try to develop the symphony. It's really just to bring music for a brief moment in time to people that don't have much else to kind of lift their spirits or don't have much else bringing in, you know, this is, these are a group of people that society has kind of forgotten in a way, you know, like locked away in prison mm -hmm. for various reasons. Many of these people, I'm not saying that the people in prison are, are wonderful men and women that are being in a way mistreated. A lot of them will admit that they have done things, which sometimes they regret it. Sometimes they don't, but that deservedly they're locked away, but it doesn't mean that, they should be treated not like they're human. And I have to say some of the most rewarding things I've done have been going to these prisons and playing different pieces and just seeing the attention, right? Normally when you go to a concert hall, you play a piece and people are there, but you know, they're kind of missing their phones and maybe they're not paying attention. They're shuffling around, lots of coughing. The concerts that I've done in prison are nothing like that at all. You play a chain music piece, might be 40 minutes long for a group of hardened criminals that might have never heard a violin before. And there's not a peep. It's like silence for the entire time. And just them absorbing something which 
you know, a chance for them to maybe not feel like they're in prison, perhaps. And we always have a conversation afterwards. And it's the most amazing thing because a lot of times it's very surprising the questions that will be asked and what kinds of things some of these inmates want to talk about. You know, you don't expect to talk about your feelings with, you know, this kind of six foot five guy that's in prison for a reason that you don't know, but looking at him, you're terrified and you think, well, I, I can maybe guess why you're in here. Right. And then they want to talk with you about how the slow movement of Vivaldi's Four Seasons made them feel. It's totally not what I expected and, and somewhat surreal. Um, but I guess it makes me remember like that's the reason that we're playing music. We're, we're playing music to evoke feelings in people and anybody can have these feelings and maybe I should have not made kind of decisions ahead of time about what my reactions or what the reactions the inmates might be to my playing. Right. But are you, are you, I presume you approach the playing in a situation like that quite differently. I would say not at all. I would say I'd approach it exactly the same oh, way. Okay. I would say that whenever I'm playing something, my goal is to communicate with the audience and you know, at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter whether it's 3,000 people in a 3,000 seat hall or one person. You're, you're still trying to communicate something and you're still trying to put into music what you feel about that music and hopefully give that to somebody else. So I don't think you change anything. It's just a different audience. But beyond that, everybody's human and we're all, you know, looking for communication. Are you scared at all or uncomfortable at all in, in, in that environment? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, it's it can be terrifying, right? Well, the first time I walked into Wentworth, there are some very scary looking people there. And rightfully so, some of them have done things which I don't want to think about. And it doesn't ever come up. But you know, when you walk in and you see these kind of like iron grates in the second floor, and you know that there's guards with guns behind those grates. It's a bit scary. And it's also and like, then you can't, it's not like you can say, Oh, I, you know, I'm com uncomfortable. I'm just going to leave because you can't no 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 it takes about two hours to get out because there's all these procedures where like you know you gotta everybody has to be back in their cell that the lockdown has to happen before they can let anybody out because there's a whole count you know there's these kind of like panels on the second floor of, of i guess the gym where we played these metal panels and i'm like oh what are those for and those are the basically the pads where the warning shots will happen if anything goes wrong that's where the guards will shoot first just to basically be like, okay, simmer down. And then the next shots are to stop people from riding or doing whatever. And it's, you know, they, for them, it's very matter of fact, like, oh yeah, that's just where we, you know, that's where we shoot and we need to calm people down. Right. And you're kind of like, oh, okay. I hope that doesn't happen. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, yeah. What's the greatest gift of being a teacher? I think the greatest gift is learning from your students, right? I've gotten to work with hundreds of incredibly bright young artists, young men and women that come to university or even pre-university that are playing music. But these are some really smart people. They don't always go into music. Some of them go into medicine or law or different kinds of things. But to get to interact and kind of have discussions about music, you know, kind of one-on-one -on -one with really smart kids that you know, they're all growing up in a different time than me. They have different kind of thoughts about music. They have different thoughts about what they can do with music. They're open to careers which didn't even exist when I was a kid. In a way, I think it kind of keeps me young as a musician rather than falling into old habits 
I realized like, oh, okay, no, my, my ideas are not always the best or the, the correct ones. I get to learn from all the people I work with. Do, do you have goals at this point in, at this point in your career? Oh, that's a great question. Um, I, th I don't know, to be <laughs> honest. Yeah. I mean, I think in a small sense, like my goal is every time I get on stage, I want to do something a little bit better. And I think that's the, the appeal of music is that you can never achieve total perfection, right? If I play a concerto, it's never, oh, that was perfect. Now I don't ever need to do it again because I achieved it. It's like, oh, you're, you're always getting closer to what you might think your favorite interpretation will be or technical perfection, but you, you can never achieve it. So the joy of that is every time you step on stage, you have the chance to do something better or, you know, differently than you did before. And I think that's kind of part of my goal is to make sure that it's never like, oh, I get on stage, play the same thing, go home. And it becomes by rote. I think the minute you do that, then it's time to have the goal of retirement. Um, but at this point, I'm still, my goal is like every time I play quartet is to somehow achieve something which I haven't achieved before. But I mean, is there a chance that you'd say, well, one day I want to play with this symphony or one day I want to just go off and do solo work or one day I just want to dedicate all my time to the string quartet or just because um, you have everything working right now? Well, I mean, yeah, I, I suppose my goal would be to find the perfect work-life balance between all of the things that I do, between my family, between my orchestra, between teaching and between quartet and solo stuff. Um, and I would say, again, that's a goal which is not achievable, but <laughs> working towards it is very rewarding to try to find a way that everything fits into the jigsaw puzzle in that perfect way is, I think, a really good thing. Um, I, I don't expect I'll ever find that. But. And how has COVID changed? I mean, it's changed everything, but how has that yeah. affected your approach to music and what you do? Um, I think it makes communication harder. And I think inherently everything we do in music is to try to communicate with people. We play music to try to communicate something about that music or the way we feel about that music, or maybe some inherent truth or something to the music, who knows? Um, and it's harder to do that when you can't actually be in touch with people on the bright side. We live in a time where you can do amazing things like 20 years ago, I wouldn't have been able to do anything, right? I wouldn't right. have been able to play uh, make a recording on my phone and compile it with my colleagues who are also on their phones. I wouldn't have been able to do a masterclass by Zoom. I wouldn't have been able to do a kind of a, a video, which is then released over the internet to all the subscribers of the symphony. So, I mean, while it's, it's hard to say with silver linings, it's certainly lucky for me and for musicians personally that we have the access to technology that we have now. And I would say, looking at it a certain way, it's really hard to communicate with people across a computer screen. But if you can find a way to do it through a microphone, through satellites, through a telephone cable to somebody's TV via the internet, if you can truly communicate through that, imagine how great it's going to be when all of those skills that we've learned that we can put to the use when we're actually back in the concert hall and those barriers come away. We're going to feel amazing about our ability to reach people. So you're still doing teaching through yes. Zoom and stuff. Um, I can teach. Some of my students are on Zoom and some of them I'm in person at the University of Toronto. Right. Okay. Um, thank you so much for doing this. Let me finish by asking you one more question. Yeah. Tell me about the relationship you have with your violin. Um, I'm very, very lucky to have a beautiful Guarneri Del Gesu on loan 
from Peter Ungin, who's the former music director of the Toronto Symphony and a former violinist. In his previous life as a performer, he was the first violinist of the Tokyo String Quartet and a traveling soloist. And it's it's an amazing thing. A lot of violinists have instruments that are loaned to them right. that are owned by collectors or by banks. And this is a really different situation. This is not Peter who happened to have an old violin that he bought in his investment. This is a violinist that played on this instrument for his most of his career. And in a way, had it taken away from him, he quit playing because he got something called focal dystonia, which meant that he didn't have control over certain muscles in his hands. And then 20 years later, he offered me his voice. He had his instrument. And he said, it's not being played right now. And I would love if you had the chance to play on this. Wow. And that that's an incredible thing to imagine that, to have something taken away from you and to have your voice and to offer that voice to somebody else and let them in a way take what you've used and make it their own. I can't, I'm, I'm so grateful for his generosity, but also just for his willingness to say like, you know, this is, this was something that was kind of mine, but now it's your chance to make something beautiful with it. And I think it's a lovely way of looking at kind of art and tools that are also artistic that perhaps we don't truly own them, that we're just kind of caretakers for what they can bring to the world and what they can bring to everybody else. So I'm I'm very, very lucky to have this incredible violin. Um, did, so if it hadn't been played, and was it not played for like 20 years? Yeah, I mean, I think he pulled it out every so often, but it certainly wasn't played regularly for 20 years. So I presume that that has an effect on the actual instrument. When when you received it and started playing it, did it did it just fit perfectly immediately? Yeah, I got, it sounded pretty awesome right away, I got to say. <laughs> <laughs> but it is true. These violins, when they're not played, they kind of, they close up in and on themselves and we have to play them to open and open them up, we call it. And the science behind all this is not very well worked out but when you play an instrument for a long time you kind of open up different resonances in the wood it vibrates a different way so i would even say that this violin probably sounds different now than when peter had been playing on it regularly because he plays in a different way than me and will be looking for slightly different sounds and slightly different resonances and so the kind of positive reinforcement in a fiddle of looking for certain sounds and pulling those sounds up sounds out over a period of many years will actually cause it to vibrate in a different way. It's incredible. It, it is amazing. Um, thank you so much for doing this. I, I've always wanted to talk to you and, and I've been editing some of your videos and I thought, well, here's somebody I'd love to talk to. So having this opportunity means a great deal to me. So thank you for spending this Thanks. time with me. Now, real pleasure. Thank you.